So this morning we're going to look at uh, the worship of the Magi. And this is uh, one of the events that didn't actually take place immediately at the time of the birth of our Lord. Probably months later, maybe a year later. But it certainly uh, teaches us some very important things about worshiping the Lord today. So let's uh, begin in Matthew chapter 2. And I want to begin by reading the first uh, two verses. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east. We have a popular Christmas song, We Three Kings, a way of telling that. I remember many years ago, uh, I was on a... KQC radio program called Pastors Forum, which I used to be a part of on Saturday morning. And uh, the station manager, who's now with the Lord, Paul Sublett, uh, would have about three pastors in, and every Saturday morning we would discuss the Scriptures. But it was around Christmas time, so he wanted the pastors to pretend like they were the Magi. And he would ask us questions. And uh, so we said, okay, we'll, we'll give it a shot. I don't know how many of us there were, but of course we don't know. So we were kind of looking at one another like deer in headlights, not knowing how to give an answer. And then finally one of the pastors kind of panicked and he spoke up and he said, how many of us were there? So many, I lost count. So we really don't know how many magi there were. There probably were more than three, I would guess. But... Uh, There's this group of people that are called Magi. And the Magi basically were from the East, as we are told here. Uh, They're the Magi, verse 1, from the East, who arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born of the King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the East and have come to worship him. So they're from the east. Now, we don't know exactly their origin. Probably in the Babylon or Persian areas where they eventually came from. But they were Gentiles. And this is one of the most uh, remarkable things about the story is that we know that when Jesus was born, we had the shepherds. Jewish shepherds came and worshipped Him. And now at this later point, we have Gentiles. And the Gentiles are coming to worship the King of the Jews. And this incredible observation, I think, is highlighting for us and foreshadowing for us the glory of the new covenant that Jesus Christ will bring as the King of the Jews. He would not only be the King of the Jews, He would be the King of all people who would come and worship Him. So no longer would the worship of the Messiah be confined to Jews only, but the floodgates for Gentiles would be opened up so they would stream in. And we see that in these Gentile magi that are coming way from the east, showing that the dividing wall in Christ is now broken down between the Jew and the Gentile. Um, my people, not a different people, but they will join with the Jews to become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
We find in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, that they sang a new song saying, Worthy are ye to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So this, this incredible gospel that's going to go out throughout the world for both Jews and Gentiles, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Jewish Messiah is not for the Jews only, but for all nations, saving any and every sinner that comes to Him, is now being celebrated by these Gentile magi coming from the East to worship the newborn King. It truly is a phenomenal event foreshadowing the glory of the new covenant gospel so who were the magi well the magi were wise men they weren't kings but they were kind of a priestly caste they were scholars in the area of religion and philosophy they were also skilled astronomers so that they became, as a group of people, valuable counselors to kings and leaders of nations. They would be able to, or claim the ability to interpret the signs in the heavens. And so they were very well respected and looked upon uh, by kings and leaders for their advice, their wisdom, and their counsel. So these are the magi uh, that, that we're reading about. So... We see in verse 2, well, it could have been just a supernatural light that they saw when they were in the east. We don't know exactly what that form would have taken. Obviously, they would have looked up. It would appear to be a star in the sky, a light above them in some form or fashion. So it very well could have been just a supernatural light that they saw. And they, since the Magi were astronomers or astrologers, we know that they were very much uh, interested in studying the stars and the planets. The planets were viewed as stars by them back in those days. And one of the planets in particular that they stepped across the face of this other star by the name of Regulus. Jupiter was oftentimes associated as the star of royalty because it got its name from Jupiter, the king of the gods. And so that star oftentimes they viewed as being associated with kings and centuries before Christ was actually born. But these cuneiform tablets uh, lay out the calculations and, uh, of them studying Jupiter's pattern and path across the sky. As a planet, Jupiter can move across the sky. Sometimes it'll stand still. Sometimes it'll go backwards. And this was really intriguing to the Magi. And these tablets show that they actually studied uh, Jupiter and they would calculate and measure its movement across the sky. In fact, they've also found a uh, cuneiform tablet where they lay out the path of Jupiter in the form of a trapezoid. And what was so phenomenal about this discovery is that the use of a trapezoid to, to track the pattern of Jupiter and other stars was not known until 1400 A.D. That's where they believed that the, that the, 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 the astronomers had enough geometry that they could employ trapezoids to to measure the 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 pattern of and the path of uh, of of Jupiter but this they found 
1400 years earlier in the BC range. So this is this really rewrote history because it put this use of trapezoids and geometry and studying Jupiter's path 1400 1500 years earlier than they had uh, previously known that uh, that it was used. So it was quite a phenomenal thing. So it could have been we don't know for sure but it could have been that uh, something with uh, with the planet Jupiter was used by God's grace to give them some information that the king of the Jews was going to be born. Now, how would they made that association? Well, it could have been by a direct revelation from God, Persian Empire. So he was one of the counselors that served many of these different kings. And in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men or the magi of Babylon. So we find that Daniel had achieved tremendous status in the ancient world, even among the magi. So it is, it is conceivable that the, the studied by them so that they had a general idea of when the birth of the Messiah would take place based on that prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. And so when they saw the alignment of the star in such a way, it was sufficient to give them the knowledge that the birth of, a, of the new king of Israel uh, had, had occurred. So we don't know for sure. Some of this is somewhat guesswork. But in however, whether it's a supernatural light or whether God used some natural phenomenon, they saw the star in the east and it made them realize the birth of the king of the Jews has happened. We need to go to Jerusalem. We need to go and investigate. We want to go and worship this new king. So we read in verse 3 that when Herod the king heard this, that is, he heard the Magi going around Jerusalem asking the question in verse 2, where is the... He father did and he carried that over, but his heart really wasn't in it. Uh, So we could kind of call him a a gyno. You've heard of a a rhino, Republican in name only. This is a Jew in name only. He, He just... He was there. He was their king, but he really wasn't... He didn't have a heart of a Jew. Uh, So he was a tyrant. He was a man who was very jealous of his own to kill uh, Jesus. August Augustus Caesar is reported to have said it'd be better to be Herod's dog than one of his children. So this is the kind of man who now in verse 3 is troubled. But notice the rest of verse 3, and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod is troubled, you better start looking over your shoulder. It probably means someone's going to get the axe. It's kind of, and that's sad. Here he's the king of the Jews, but he doesn't know the Jewish scriptures. He's ignorant of them. He was a ruler, but he didn't have the light of God's word to guide him. And just had, so he called in the experts, the chief priests, the scribes of the people, and he inquired them. He didn't have the motivation to study the Word of God, but he know they he believed they should have the answers, so he called them in. And obviously they know uh, Matthew chapter, uh, excuse me, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. 
And so they quote that to him, stating that this newborn king, this ruler, this shepherd of God's people, that's the Messiah, this is the Messianic king, will be born in Bethlehem. And what a fitting place. Bethlehem, that humble little town, probably didn't even have a Walmart or a McDonald's, just a little bitty town in it. What a fitting name for where the bread of life himself, the man of says, then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And when he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Well, obviously, his motive is not to worship. His motive is to murder. That's what he wants to do. He wanted to know the exact time of the star appeared to know the age of the children that he would have to massacre. That's what he wanted to know. You know, it's interesting that Christianity's gospel of a Savior King is is a threat to evil rulers today as it was back then. We preach a King, a Savior, one who can forgive sins, but one before whom we also bow and worship and follow. But for tyrants, that's a threat. And Christianity's gospel is a threat to governments. Because when a king or rulers want to be autonomous, and they want to be in control, and they don't want to be under the control of another, then their only recourse is to exterminate the threat, to exterminate the king. And that's what Herod's plan was. He doesn't want to bow before Christ. He doesn't want to receive the Messiah as his Lord, his King. So what do you do? You persecute. You kill. You massacre. So that's what was in his heart. Well, starting in these following verses, the Magi, now they know that Jesus is in Bethlehem. And so we read, for example, and this is where we begin to see some of the aspects of worship of the Magi beginning to come to the surface. We find, obviously, that it's, number one, a guided worship. If you look at verse 9, after hearing the king, they, the Magi, went their way, And the star which they had seen in the east went on before them and it came and stood over the place where the child was. So at this point, the star has to be supernatural. Supernatural star because it takes them to the very house where Jesus was. So their their worship is being guided. And really when you think about it, if you look at the whole picture, it's being guided in several ways. Possibly through natural reps of the Gospel. It cannot take you directly to Jesus Christ. It can lead you in the right direction. But it can't actually get you to the Savior. Born in Jews. They assumed He would be in Jerusalem. But He wasn't there. So then they had special revelation. They had Micah's prophecy. That took them to Bethlehem. So you always need more than natural revelation to to worship the Lord. You need special revelation as well. So that took them to the very 
town where Jesus was, but to actually get to the Lord Jesus, they needed some supernatural revelation. They needed the star. The star reappears in a supernatural form and guides them directly to the very home where Jesus was. So natural revelation is not sufficient. Even special revelation in and of itself is not sufficient because many people have the Bible, but if they don't have grace in the heart, if they don't have the Holy Spirit, the Word of God falls on dead ears. So the Lord gives them this incredible star, this supernatural grace, this light that guides them directly into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is, I think in many ways, uh, what is true for all people when they come to the Lord Jesus. Natural revelation can certainly give us some understanding of the nature, the glory, the character, the power of God. But we need special revelation. We need the Gospel. We need the Word of God to actually lay out the Gospel. But we need even more than that. We need grace in the heart. We need a supernatural transforming light and placed within our hearts so that we can actually go into the very presence of Christ and to worship Him. I've got to do a little mic management here just for a second. So this is, this is where they're at. And this is where I think any sinner who actually finds his way into the very presence of Jesus Christ needs that special grace, that special light to lead us there through regeneration and through the Spirit of God opening our eyes to see the glory of Christ. So they were definitely guided they were guided by natural revelation, possibly, certainly special revelation and supernatural revelation to bring them right into the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus. So the first thing about their worship is it's guided. It's guided by God's Word and it's guided by God's grace. The second thing we see about the worship of the Magi is that it's a joyful worship. Look at verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. See, the reappearance of the star, I think, gave them the confidence and the assurance that they were about to meet the newborn king. And I think that joy so filled their heart, says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, that's a huge amount of joy because they were anticipating going into the very presence of the Lord. We should always look forward with joy in our heart to the worship of God. To the worship of Jesus Christ. Now the Lord is always with us, we know, but in the corporate worship of Christ's body, the Lord is with us in a special way. And I think whenever we are gathered to worship, we should also come with great joy at the prospect of the Lord meeting with us. He's with us now. He is meeting with us at this very moment and with great joy. And may that fill our hearts with His joy as well. The third thing we see about the worship of the Magi is that it was very zealous. Zealous in the sense that they expended great energy, great effort to come and worship the Lord. Now by this time, again, He's in a house. So they're traveling from the east 
all the way to Bethlehem. And probably the route they would have gone would have been a thousand miles at least to get there. The way they traveled back then, obviously, was this was a journey that would not take days. It would take many weeks, if not months, if not longer, depending upon where they actually came from. When they traveled that thousand miles, it it wasn't by air. They were not in air-conditioned vans or trucks. There were no hotels conveniently spaced along the way with restaurants. They, they had to endure a lot of hardship. They may have ridden camels or donkeys or walked. We don't know exactly how they got there. But it was an arduous journey. It was a great distance. There are great hardships and dangers in traveling back in those days. But they were willing to put their worship over their comforts and they were willing to come great distance to worship the Lord. You know, we live in a time and in a day when the love for Christ easily grows cold and our worship is easily neglected for the smallest of reasons and inconveniences. But the Magi teach us that Christ is worthy of worship. And He is worthy of zealous worship, committed worship, dedicated worship. A worship that's willing to overcome the inconveniences and the hardships to press forward because Christ is worth the worship. And the Magi are willing to travel long distances and I Praise God for those here that travel long distances to worship the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. Not only was it a zealous worship, but it was also a humble worship. In verse 11, we read that after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. It's a very humble worship. Now again, who are these magi? These magi were leaders of their culture. They were respected counselors to heads of state. They were educated men, affluent, experts. They were consulted for their wisdom. Many would seek out their counsel and advice. But when they get there, they look at that little baby and they realize they're in the presence of their superior. They look at that little baby and they realize they're not in the same class. Affluent men fall to the ground before this little baby and they worship Him because they realize that He is so much greater than they. This certainly indicates the level of their faith these Magi were believers. They came to adore Him. The One whom the prophets of old called the desire of the nations. And they have come to fall before Him and to worship Him. Today we call Him Savior. We call Him King and Lord and Master and God. But He's worthy of our worship as a Magi teach us in this passage their humble was their their worship was humble not from a proud heart
but from a lowly spirit. And then we just see the wonder of their worship. Again, in verse 11, they enter the house, and who is there? The child, Mary, his mother. No one else is mentioned. Marveled at the fact that he wasn't in Jerusalem. That's where the king lives. It's Jerusalem. That's where the palace of the king is. It's Jerusalem. But this king was not in Jerusalem. He wasn't in the capital city. In fact, he was in a little town. A small, little, insignificant town called Bethlehem. A humble little house in a humble little town. His parents were not royalty at all. They were but middle class Jews. Joseph was a carpenter, his adopted father. This family had no claim to riches or royalty. But this child was most certainly this incredible king. And I would have thought they would have wondered about the humble circumstances of this little king. But I think their wonder would have also extended beyond that. Where were the crowds? Where were the chief priests and the scribes who knew the Scriptures? They knew Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Why aren't they there? Why aren't the, 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 the Jewish people flocking there and singing and praising God for the, for the birth of this newborn king? Well, maybe they feared Herod's wrath, but there was no one else there. There were no nobles. There were no movers and shakers of society. It seemed that the people were so apathetic to His birth. No one from Jerusalem would travel the five miles south to Bethlehem to come and worship with the Magi. There's no evidence that anyone else was with them. Where are the crowds? Where are the people to worship this King? You know, today most celebrate Christmas without any worship at all. Reminded of Richard Dawkins, that well-known atheist who still claimed to be a cultural Christian because he said, I still enjoy going to Christmas parties and Christmas events. And many Christians are no better than cultural Christians today. They don't see the glory of the Christmas story. They're not excited about His birth, but they'll go to the parties and engage in all the activities. It's just like all the people of Jerusalem. Yeah, I hear the King is born, but maybe not. Maybe that's not Him. But they weren't moved to come and worship. Cultural Christians... And so what we must do is to pray for the Lord to guard our hearts, to see Christ for who He is and to worship Him and to wonder at His worship, but also to wonder at the fact that the world doesn't worship Him, only outwardly, superficially. I think one of the lessons from this is to teach us that you can be very near to the King. You can be very near to where He is but that doesn't mean you have godliness in your heart. 
You can have the Bible in your head, but not grace in your heart. The chief priests and the scribes, they had the Bible in their head, but they didn't have the grace in their heart to actually come and worship. And just because many lived in Jerusalem, they were close to Jesus. Many lived in Bethlehem. They were close to Jesus, but you can be close to Jesus and not know Jesus. You can be close to Jesus and come to church and not really know Him and not really worship Him. And so I think the Magi were struck with the wonder of where are the worshipers? We have come. Why not others? And we should pray, Oh God, give us that heart to worship the King. To have more than just the story in our head, but to have that worshiping grace within our hearts. Well, we also know that there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who seek the Savior, who find the Savior, and worship the Savior, they're the wise men. But those who do not seek Him, they do not find Him, they do not worship Him, well, they are the fools. And if truth is to be written in the annals of history, it's the wise today as the wise back then that still seek Him, find or worship. After coming into... It doesn't say they open their trinkets... They observe that all three of these are used in the worship of God in the temple and the tabernacle. The gold, of course, was throughout the temple. All the furniture was covered with it. The mercy seat was made out of it. The, the golden lampstand was solid gold. Frankincense was used in the incense that was burnt in the temple. And uh, the myrrh was a part of the anointing oil. Others have thought that maybe they are symbolic. Again, the Magi may not have understood this. But certainly gold suggests royalty, frankincense, divinity, and myrrh, humanity. Because myrrh is one of the embalming spices. Remember when Nicodemus brought the spices to wrap around Jesus when they buried Him in the tomb? Myrrh was one of those spices. And so maybe in a hidden way, not so much known to the Magi, but what we see in their gifts is indicative of the Gospel. We find that in many ways the very Gospel itself is reflected. For the Son of God, who was God Himself, came down to become a man. And He lived a sinless life and ultimately suffered and died on the cross as He paid the penalty for our sins so that God became a man to die. And He was actually wrapped with myrrh and cloth. And then He rose from the grave on the third day and now ascends to heaven and is at the Father's right hand. So all of these gifts may have many different... God ordained that these gifts would have which were very expensive and valuable gifts, obviously, were able to provide for the family as they soon had to flee Bethlehem and go to Egypt for a period of months until King Herod eventually would die and then return back to Bethlehem and ultimately, well, back to Nazareth. 
And so this gift of gold and frankincense and myrrh would have helped to provide for the expenses of the family, the gift of a savior, the gift of a king. That's the greatest gift of all because Jesus died and gives the gift of everlasting life to those who repent and believe in Him. So when the Magi are coming, they are coming to worship the gift of God, Jesus Christ. But they come in response to God's gift by giving Him gifts. And that's really what the story is highlighting. They bring their gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. God has given His gift in His Son. And Christmas and the Magi teach us that to respond is to worship and give a gift back to God. How do we do that? Well, like the Magi, we can bring financial gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We can bring our tithes and offerings as we worship the Lord. We can give our gifts to others. As Jesus said, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. We can give gifts to the Lord as we help and give gifts to others. But there's even a more precious gift than the Magi's gold. And this is the question I leave with us this morning. Have you forgotten to give a present today? We give presents to one another in love out of our devotion and thankfulness for the gift that we've received in Jesus Christ. But have you brought a gift for Christ? Have you brought a gift to give Him your heart? To give Him your life? To give Him all that you are? That is a gift that is worthy of a king. So when we think about the Magi and the gift that they brought, to Jesus. You have given your life. You have borne my sins. You have suffered the wrath of God. You have sacrificed it all for me. Lord, I give my all to you. That's the gift that is worthy of this King. And yet when I say that, I know within my own heart, my own frailty, I know my own for the Lord. And though we, we are overwhelmed with the unworthiness and the placed it in the hands of the master and the master multiplied it that's what the lord can do you give him what you have what you can and trust him to multiply it to increase it for his glory the servants probably thought it was a foolish thing to go fill the water pots up with water they've they've ran out of wine at the wedding there's no more wine and He wants us to put water in the water pots. But they obeyed and they gave what they could. And in the hands of Christ, He turned the water into wine. I think the gift that we should consider giving to the Lord Jesus this season, and not just this season, not just once a year, but every day of the year, is to give Him ourselves. To dedicate to Him our life who we are, what we have for His service, for His kingdom, for His glory. Because the gift that God gave to us is worthy of our response to Him. Granted, we cannot give that gift apart from His grace, apart from the Spirit working within us. But that is the issue I think that the Magi ask us today.
They would say, I have given my gift because this king is worthy of such a gift. And may the Lord help us to give it. Let's pray. Our Father God, we want to humbly come before You today and just marvel, Lord, that we live in a world. And Lord, we thank You for that gift. There is no other gift greater than the gift of Your Son. And the gift that He gives to us, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of everlasting life, there is no greater gift than what we can receive only through Jesus Christ. So that to Him, all that we have and all that we are belongs. And He is worthy of us responding like the Magi to bring our gift to the Lord Jesus. So Father, help us in our weakness. Help us in our distracted lives. Help us when we oftentimes do wander and our hearts are so cold towards You at times. And may the Spirit of God warm us. May we see the wonder of His glory. And may we daily present ourselves, the members of our body, as instruments of righteousness to You. May we present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And help us to do that even today. So Lord, we thank You for the worship of the Magi. We thank You for what we can glean from it. And so give us Your Holy Spirit that we might come and worship You as You are worthy of our worship and of our gift. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.